0: The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the Liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. I think if there's one thing that we can all agree on, it's that social media is an entirely beautiful and encouraging place. Nothing bad ever happens. That you go to Twitter and you will find out on Twitter how wonderful you and all of your views are and how universally shared they are because nothing bad ever happens on social media, even though we're all on it. Like, we all know, right, that it's inherently toxic and we're all on it too much. But there are things I wouldn't know about myself if there were no such thing as Twitter. Like, I would never have known. I would never come up with this on my own that I am, in fact, an arrogant, woke, false teacher. I can't be all three of those things. <laughs> like, I try not to be a false teacher. The, the other three, we can debate, but those are the things I find out about myself. You have probably found out things about yourself online too. Like, the great American philosopher, Charles Barkley, So that social media is where losers go to feel important. And we inherently know this from our use of it. That most of the time what happens there isn't particularly good or redemptive, but there are some redemptive moments in it about five years ago I wrote this book called Unarmed Empire it is my favorite thing that I've ever written there's so much of me in it It took me about four years to write it and every now and then like some group or a person or some church will pick it up and they'll want to talk with me about it or something will happen around the book and I'm always at a loss because anytime they want to talk about it like I have to go back and like reread it because I have forgotten what I put in the book And recently online on Twitter, there's a guy who's been reading through Unarmed Empire and every day he posts on Twitter a quote from the book and I read them in the morning and I go, wow, that sounds really good. But I don't remember saying that at all. And it's probably not because my memory is so bad even though that's true. The reason that I don't remember so much of it is because I was telling so much of my own story in that book as a way of kind of like exercising, like dealing with the past and working through some things. And the reason that I don't remember all of it is because there's so much of it that I've tried to forget. And so part of that book is just me walking through our family stories, especially key moments. So I've mentioned before, um, for about a decade, um, I was a pastor at another church here in town and Rochelle and I moved here to Houston. I was 25 years old. We were young and idealistic and we had this great group of students that we were working with and we poured our lives into that group of students into those parents, into that church. Like it was our social network and our spiritual support, everything. And then 2008, I took a trip out of town and a bunch of people kind of got together while I was gone. And when I came back on a Sunday night, I got a phone call and they said, a couple of us would like to meet with you on Tuesday. So, I'm not the dumbest person in the world. I knew when I got this phone call what was going to happen. And so, a couple of our lay leaders met with me in my office, and I was fired. And I was devastated. Like, things were not supposed to turn out like this. We had given so much of ourselves to that group of people. And seemingly overnight, all of it was gone. And this was 2008. This was the height of the financial crisis. And we had two young children. Our our youngest hadn't even turned two at the time. My wife, Rochelle, wasn't working full time. There was no money. Everything was tight. And when you're, when you're a pastor, it's not like having some other kind of jobs where if you lose this job or if you leave this job, you just find another job in town. Usually if you lose a job, that means like you're moving away. So you're leaving everything behind. It was right in the middle of the housing crisis. And there was no way that we were going to be able to sell this house. Like we were left high and dry and I'd never felt more empty or more like a failure in my life. As a matter of fact, this funeral that I did yesterday was at that church and just driving in the parking lot, walking in the building, you just feel it all over again. And I'm not the kind of person that gets nervous or gets jittery very often, but if you've ever wondered if the body actually does keep score, it does. But we had a great opportunity, or at least we thought, to go to California and to work with a church that we found really interesting there. And as soon as we got there from day one, it was terrible. Like, it was terrible from before day one. Matter of fact, I think those are the people who are responsible for the comments on Twitter. (laughs) Like, we tried to work it out. Rochelle and I didn't have very many friends. We didn't fit well. They didn't like me, and I didn't like them. And if they didn't like me, clearly, they were the problem. And we were there for three years. And we just realized we don't have all that much support here. This isn't serving them. It's not serving us. It's one of those relationships that needed to end before it went on any farther. And so we came back to Texas. And I drove to Texas with my spiritual director, which I would not advise you to ever do because we stopped in Phoenix for several days for spring training, which was the good part, but the rest of it was just two days of him asking me questions all the way from California back to Texas. Somehow, Rochelle had tricked me into allowing her and the girls to just fly to Colorado and hang out with friends and then fly down to Texas. (laughs) Clearly, I am not the smartest person in our relationship. we came back to this little church in this little town, Temple, Texas. And what was the upside about that? Was that my mother-in-law, Rochelle's mom, lived in this town, Salado, which is only about 20 miles away. And we didn't have anything. We didn't even have a place to stay. So we lived with my mother-in-law. As a matter of fact, she moved out of the master bedroom so Rochelle and I could have it. And as soon as we landed back in Texas, both of our cars just totally crapped out. Both needing thousands of dollars of repairs and thousands of dollars that we didn't have. And this one afternoon, Rochelle had taken the girls. She had taken her mom's car, and they were out doing something, and I was sitting in the living room. And if I could have one word to describe what that felt like, it would be the word alone. Just utterly alone because my life was not supposed to be like this. There's a Spanish mystic named St. John of the Cross. And St. John says that for everyone, for any of us to grow, to develop, that we have to go through what he called the dark night of the soul. And many of you know exactly what that is. You've had a relationship that fell apart, or you lost a job. You've had a marriage that was rocky for a really long time, or some event happened, and it doesn't seem like God showed up the way that you had hoped or expected God to show up in. And and what St. John of the Cross says is that all of us, in order to grow, have to go through a dark night, because here's the journey that we're on, is that we are all looking for a journey of completeness. And what we do to pursue completeness for most of our lives is pursue pleasure. And we run up against something where we realize that that pursuit has not been leading to where we want it to go, and it won't ever lead that way. And so, yeah, some of us, when we enter into our dark night of the soul, like we can talk about the death of a loved one or the destruction of a relationship. But there are others of us, the dark night looks just the opposite where we got the relationship that we wanted or we got the promotion. We earned the money, we bought the house, we had the children, and we realized that that's not what it was supposed to be either. That whatever we thought it was gonna be, whatever we were promised, it didn't turn out to be that thing. And that's what causes the dark night. And so some of you are in our Living the Story groups. And this past week, you have the opportunity to share your, your word, your dark night of the soul. But it happens anytime we run up against real life when we expect it to be one way and it doesn't turn out to be that way. And most of us wouldn't call the dark night of the soul, the dark night of the soul. Most of us would just call it suffering. And we don't even have language all the time for that kind of suffering, especially when you look around and things seem to be pretty good, fairly good but you're in the dark night, and we don't know what to do. And there's this apostle who wrote a good chunk of the New Testament named Paul. And if you've been around the church for a long time, you've heard the name the Apostle Paul, you've probably read some of Paul's work, but also I know that in any room like this, there are some of us who Paul may not be our favorite person in the world. And a lot of that is because somebody said something about what the, the apostle Paul said and we didn't like what they said or we didn't like his view on this and so everything's up for grabs. But Paul really is the person who created Christian theology. And what you don't know, what most of us don't realize about Paul is that most of his life, most of his time as a Christian wasn't spent doing grand and glorious things. He wasn't a televangelist sitting on a throne made of gold and purple. Most of his life was suffering. Like most of the time he's suffering, which actually becomes a problem because there's this little church in this town called Corinth. And Paul has loved this church. He planted this church and he went away for a little bit. And some other folks came in and they said, you know what, why would you be a follower of Jesus if it looks like Paul's life? If it looks like continual dark night of the soul? And so he writes them like a series of letters explaining what it is to be a follower of Jesus, what it actually looks like. And what I love about 2 Corinthians, the letter of 2 Corinthians, is that Paul begins this way, normalizing what is our experience. He says, blessed be God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all consolation, who consoles us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to console those who are in any affliction with the consolation with which we ourselves are consoled by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are abundant for us, so also our consolation is abundant through Christ. If we are being afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation. If we are being consoled, it is for your consolation which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we are also suffering. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our consolation. So this is what Paul is saying. There are two sides of the same coin, that you will suffer that we will all suffer. But the flip side of that is consolation. And suffering that we endure, that I endure, that you endure, that that is normal. That that's part of it. And we have formed over time this imagination. That God can only be God, and life can only be good. When everything is up and to the right, That's not actually how it works. And all you have to do is live long enough to know that God's consolation is in the suffering. As a matter of fact, it heralds back to what St. John of the Cross was saying. You can't grow, you can't develop without suffering. There are simply things that I can't know that you can't know about God and the work that God is doing without suffering. And so as we suffer, we are consoled. And Paul knows this because he suffers all the time. Over and over again in 2 Corinthians, Paul is talking about his own suffering. That's why when he gets to chapter 11, this is what he says about the way his own life looks. He says, but whatever, but in whatever way they dare boast, remember. I'm speaking as a character, as a fool. Paul is saying, like, I would be boasting about all of the things that I've done if I were like them. He says, I dare to boast even more. Are they Hebrews, God's chosen? So am I. Are they true Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants to the anointed one, the liberating king? I am even more so. I can't believe how foolish I sound. I have worked harder for God's kingdom, taken more beatings, been dragged in and out of prisons, and have been eye to eye with death. Five times, I have withstood 39 lashes from Jewish authorities. Three times, I was battered with rods. Once, I was almost stoned to death. Three times, I was shipwrecked. And I spent one day and night adrift on the sea. I have been on many journeys and faced the most extreme circumstances, perilous rivers, violent thieves, and threats by my own people and by Gentile outsiders alike. I have faced dangers in the city, in the wilderness, and at sea, and danger from spies among our brothers and sisters. I have survived toil and hardship, sleepless nights, hunger and thirst without a crumb in sight, bare to the cold as if these external trials weren't enough. There's the daily stress I feel and anxiety I carry for all the churches under my care. Who is weak without this arousing my empathy? Who gets hurt and offended without, the, in, without this inciting my burning anger? So as you can see, if I have to boast, I will. But only in my weaknesses. Paul is trying to rearrange our expectations about what it is and what it is that we do and I get it absolutely zero people are signing up for suffering like if you told me that you wanted to sign up for suffering I would point you to one of the many therapists that we refer people to in this church. But that doesn't change the nature of the thing. And that's why Paul, earlier in 2 Corinthians, is able to say this. He says, but this beautiful treasure is contained in us that this gospel, that the love of Jesus, the story of Jesus, that that is contained in us, cracked pots made of earth and clay, so that the transcendent character of this power will be clearly seen as coming from God and not from us. We are cracked and chipped from our afflictions on all sides, but we are not crushed by them. We are bewildered at times, but we do not give in to despair. We are persecuted, but we have not been abandoned. We have been knocked down, but we are not destroyed. We always carry around in our bodies, the reality of the brutal death and suffering of Jesus. Paul literally says we carry around the rotting corpse of Jesus. As a result, his resurrection life, rises and reveals its wondrous powers in our bodies as well. For while we live, we are constantly handed over to death on account of Jesus so that his life may be revealed in even in our mortal bodies of flesh. So death is constantly at work in us, but life is working in you. Like for Paul, This is the point that in our brokenness, in our darkness, in the dark night, that those are the times where God's light shines. And the times where we are tempted to believe that we have been abandoned, that God is not at work, where things don't turn out the way that we expected or the way that we planned, that in those moments, in those seasons, that is when God is shining to prove, to demonstrate to the world that this power is from God and not from us. Now, this is how God works in weaknesses. And we have inherited in the culture this fundamental belief that for you to be good, that your life has to look perfect, that everything has to line up, that there shouldn't be bad times or hard times or something is wrong. And it doesn't mean to say that those things are enjoyable or something's not wrong, that there's not healing that needs to take place, but those are the times when God shines because we carry this treasure in jars of clay that your dark night might be the precise time for God to shine. This is the way that St. John of the Cross puts it in the dark night of the soul. He says, the endurance of darkness is preparation for great light. And I don't know where you are right now. whether it feels to you like you are in a dark night. But what if you're in preparation for a great light? What would feel differently about that to you? How would you think about that if you knew that in this weakness, the thing that you can boast in, in this weakness, God's power, is at work. This is what Paul says about this treasure in Clay Jars, he says, we share the same spirit of faith as the one who wrote the Psalm, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, and that belief leads us to acknowledge, that the same God who resurrected the Lord Jesus will raise us with Jesus and will usher us all together into his presence. All of this is happening for your good. As grace is spread to the multitudes, there is a growing sound of thanks being uttered by those relishing in the glory of God. So we have no reason to despair. And maybe some of the translations that you grew up with or the translation that you have, says, so we do not lose heart. That in the darkest times, we have nothing to despair because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is working in you So I was sitting in the living room in Temple, Texas, when life was falling apart. And we were coming up on the summer and we didn't have money for the girls to do anything or for us to go on vacation, which is also something that living in California will do to you. And I got online and I was just scrolling through Cruising, reading blogs, because that was a thing that people used to do. And I read one, and this blogger was giving away a free two week summer camp for a girl my oldest daughter's age at Windshape Wilderness in Rome, Georgia. Now, if you don't know North Georgia, I'm from Georgia. Rome is beautiful. Windshape Wilderness is a campground that's owned by Chick-fil-A. It is incredible, incredible, incredible. Next time that you're at a Chick-fil-A, just ask the manager, "Have you ever been to Windshape Wilderness?" And so, I thought, I'll just, I'll just sign Malia up to see if she wins this summer camp. And I never win anything unless it's like an out-and-out competition. I just never win anything. Two weeks later, I got this email that she had won two weeks at Windshape Wilderness. Now, we, we didn't let her go because we decided… She was too young and that was too far away. She leaves for college in August and I think we're gonna go with that same plan then too. (laughs) But in that moment, getting that email, I got this glimmer of hope that I had not been forgotten. that at the lowest season, for years in the lowest season, that I wasn't alone. And you know what? You're not alone either. And wherever you are, whatever you're walking through The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you. So the one thing that you can do, that you can strive for, that you can seek, is in this season, trust in that power And do not lose heart. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ekthesiahouston.org.